Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints, ladies and gentlemen, TGIF, and welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Glad to be with you. And um, I, first of all, want to just say I hope you've enjoyed some of the shows we've done mostly uh, uh, repeats this week because I'm a little bit out of place, but glad to be here with you today to talk a little bit of economic news on this Finance Friday, and I'm here with Paul V. Shelton of Warwick Shore Advisors. Good morning, Paul. Happy Friday. How are you doing? Good morning. I am doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks. I know you have been very, very busy. We didn't even get a chance to really talk to you last month because so much has been going on. So, where to begin? Where to start? I, I don't know. So, kind of, I'm going to take your lead on on where we begin. So, do you, you have okay. any any direction you want to go in? Well, sure. As always, um, Jobs Friday is an important day on the economic calendar every month, and As today always. did not disappoint at all. Um, yeah. So, what what we've seen um, coming out of the numbers at 8:30 is that there was an addition or an add of 336,000 jobs to our economy in the month of, uh, in the month of September. Uh, and that far exceeds the expectations of $170,000, or I should say 170,000 um, jobs added to our economy during that same time frame. So um, the fear is, and the, the initial reaction when the numbers were, were released, is, um, the S&P futures, you know, tanked significantly, went down. Uh, roughly 1% and change. All of that has since been recovered in the market and intraday trading, and we're now trading positive. But as we had seen before, a quick little pause during the the, the, the second quarter uh, of this year um, was uh, job gains in the leisure and hospitality sector. And that's something that researched again in the month of September. So, you know, in living in Central Florida, where we're heavily predicated on leisure and hospitality. That is a, a great thing to see in our local economy here. Um, but in addition to that, um, our unemployment rate um, stays unchanged at 3.8%. Um, there are uh, government, healthcare, professional services, and, and technical services were, were the areas that really, really led um, are added to, I should say, um, the job gains in addition to leisure and hospitality. One thing to note about that is, as you see, government and healthcare 
um, kind of take that second reign there, more so the government. Um, whenever a government is adding a lot of jobs, that does, you know, well for the economy, but the government does get to a point where they'll start to pull back on, on adding jobs and go into a hiring freeze on those USA um, gov jobs, <laughs> usajobs.gov. So um, the overall strength of this number is really good, but a lot of the jobs that were added were government jobs. So you just have to be prepared for, you know, what will happen in the future if um, we continue on this trend and the government decides, hey, we're, we're at full employment, there's no need for us to add any more jobs right now. But other, other than that, the, the biggest question out there is what will the Federal Reserve do now? Now that we have this, this high jobs number that has blown it out of the water, we saw a contradictory number when we looked at the um, earlier in the week when we saw the jolts um, with those are the new job openings being released that show that there is about um, a, a significant rise in the number of job openings um, versus the people that are looking for jobs. Um, so that could, could placate well. And then also we see that a lot more people are, are being added to the, the workforce than anticipated. So how does all of that play into the arena for inflation and what the Federal Reserve will do, you know, in this next meeting? Um, it was anticipated that they were not raise rates again before the end of this year and maybe do one more rate hike in, in uh, 2024 and, and kind of let the market digest that. But it looks like all the rate hikes and everything that has taken place so far are, are really starting to be digested and, and the economy is going to continue to grind higher, um, which is good from an economic standpoint, but it could be very, very brutal uh, when you consider where we are in the, in the time of, of this economic cycle and how long we've been um, kind of in this uptrend that, that we're seeing now. And when you pair that with the possibility of interest rates being too high and that's choking off a lot of productivity from the corporate America, um, with the addition of student loans are going back into repayment phase now, um, there could be some trouble ahead. From a from an economic standpoint. So yeah, one of the things I did want to address is the possibility of the Fed um, hiking the rate up again before the end of the year because of the jobs report, um, trying to I guess curtail some of that the speed of that uh, job growth in some areas other areas of the economy. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask about is how does that impact uh, the Salaries, for example, in terms of, you know, now that you have this, uh, I guess you could say surplus of jobs, so to speak, um, you know, people saying, oh, well, there's enough out there for me to kind of pit one position against the other in order to try to, you know, gain, you know, some income because of this. So where do you see that standing? I see that as a as a possibility of adding wage inflation um, into the economy, even though that wasn't explicitly driven or shown in these in the most recent data. But some of the narrative that is out there currently are um, coming from a lot of places like Glassdoor.com and a lot of those um, services that provide some economic employment data research shows that 
three out of every four applicants or three out of every four interviewees that are actually in an interview, not just an applicant, but those that are, are a prime candidate in the finalization stage of being hired are already employed somewhere else. And they're either using that application or that interview as leverage at their current position or looking for another opportunity as for upside growth um, in that respect. So I, I think overall, um, you bring up a very valid point. We could see some wage inflation that can, you know, drive wages up, which um, typically, you know, depending upon the, the industry and the, and the size of the organization, could drive some, um, some layoffs uh, essentially in the long run and, until we go back to, to reach an equilibrium in that aspect. Um, just thinking about, you know, the mortgage industry, which I worked in the mortgage industry and underwriting with Wells Fargo for a period of time, and I remember when interest rates were rise ever so slightly, there, there was a round of, of layoffs that would take place. Um, so this is a, a similar respect to that. Um, you know, interest rates are another type of input cost um, separate from employment costs, but essentially those are the same exact, uh, the, the functionality works the same way. You mentioned the increase, the growth in, in the hospitality industry, which, uh, you know, definitely impacts our area. So I wanted to address the um, the, ad, the addition of Brightline to the equation in mm. terms of having yeah. the, the transport of uh, bodies coming and going from here to South Florida. And I wanted to find out, what kind of impact you see that happening, and which area is going to benefit the most from that, South Florida or Central Florida? I, I, I honestly am, am very excited about Brightline. This is something that, uh, well, just mass transit in, in total is something that I've always had an interest in ever since I was a child. Um, way back in the days where we had Mayor Glenda Hood, I actually petitioned her office and asked if we could do more to increase um, transit in Central Florida. But I, I think that it's going to be a significant boom um, for both South Florida and Orlando. Now, South Florida, you know, West Palm South is already seeing something totally different because you have a lot of hedge fund and private equity firms that are fleeing the, the north. Um, in Midwest, Northeast and Midwest, and, and coming to, to South Florida to set up camp. So that's driving um, a lot of high, higher income jobs, a lot of uh, business in the real estate market. And you're going to see more trickle effects from along the bright line, um, line I should say, uh, along the stops with um, economic development and things of that nature. Um, I've already had, you know, relatives that live in the, in the Midwest, you know, say it's cheaper to fly into Orlando than it is to fly into Miami to take a cruise out of there. So I, I know people that are coming from Cincinnati to Orlando and, and they're, they're getting on, on the bright line to take it down to the ports. Um, I see a lot of that happening. I, I see it becoming an easier way for um, people like my sister-in-law that's an attorney to travel from South Florida to, to handle a case down there and handle a case in Orlando, which she does often. Um, so I, I think we'll see, you know, a, a lot of business travel for sure. But I think during the summer months and during the holiday seasons, we'll definitely see um, more leisure and hospitality travel that, that will kick in and, and that will bode well 
you know, for us at the, as the end point of that destination and, and for us having another hub or another, or I would say, large uh, international airport outside of Miami International Airport, but another large international airport where you can field more flights and, and, and travel further. So I, I think that um, it'll have a, a significant boost to the economy. I, I personally enjoy seeing the train. I see it typically at least once a day when I'm dropping off my kids at the school or if, if I'm in the, the car line picking them up, um, the, the, that uh, afternoon train comes by, and it's, it's, it's pretty exciting to see. And, and I'm looking forward to riding it myself personally. Yeah, me too. I have to say that I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what what that's all about. Um, The other equation I wanted to bring up was um, part-time jobs. Uh, And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think that people maybe, some people anyway, may be looking at part-time jobs instead of full-time jobs, at least in terms of, let's say, transitioning from the work-from-home market into maybe eventually full-time work market and maybe the part-time job is a way to do that or maybe if, you know, taking, you know, of course, other people that just because of the high cost of inflation and other things taking on part-time jobs. So when the jobs report comes out, is there a particular portion of that equation that just relates to part-time jobs? I guess that's what I want to ask. Well, yeah. So what they're what they're really looking for in that job support is developing what the average hourly work week is uh, each month mm-hmm. to month because it does it does change um, and and it's never you know exactly forty hours a week. So it does look at that um, the number of hourly earnings for for each employee and the average size of that work week. Um, it does not break it out specifically and say. Um, um, part-time versus full-time. But what it will show is those that are um, in under are underutilized in their full potential of skill. Um, so you, you may have, you know, someone that may be, have a law degree or whatever, but they're not, you know, practicing law at this moment in time. They may just be in a transient job or, or working um, under what they would classify as their full potential. Maybe they may be working in retail um, for a period of time. To us, we look at that as, you know, maybe it is a part-time job or, you know, even if it is um, seasonally part-time, you know, it may not be part-time from the standpoint of they're only working 15 or 20 hours a week. It may fully be working 35 or 40, but it is under utilization. That's what is looked at in that respect. And I would say that right now, going back to, you know, my previous statement, the average work week for for most employees or all employees for the non-farm payroll, it, it was unchanged month over month, and it stayed at 34.4 hours a week. So on, on average, you know, um, a full-time person or, you know, the average um, citizen in our working economy is working 30, just under 35 hours a, a week. So if you look at that and, and kind of understand um, where we are shifting from the typical 40-hour um, work week, um, we're, we're no longer, you know, essentially there um, or of having that full, you know, 40-hour work week. And a, a lot of that could be attributed to some of the changes and shifts that we've seen in the style of employment 
that we have. Uh, for one, offices, a lot of offices started closing on certain days. A lot of medical offices, which we're big in the medical industry in our area, um, a lot of medical offices or specialty offices are, are not open on Friday or may have reduced hours on that Friday. And a, a lot of those in the medical industry may only work um, 36 hours a week. So and we've seen a lot, a large shift um, to nursing in the medical industry over the last 10 years. So that will kind of coincide with what the data is showing us. We're going to take a quick break. We are here with Paul Z. Shelton, Jr. of Warwick Shore Advisors. This is Finance Friday here on G's Power Hour. If you have any questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944, G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast, let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Good morning. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I've never had it so good entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we're back talking uh, the economy and other things on this Finance Friday with Paul D. Shelton of Warwick Shore Advisors. And if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. So, Paul, we see strike, strike, and strike again. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself on that. But um, just don't do that now. But anyway, um, what's the deal with the strikes? We haven't seen this resurgence of strikes in quite a while, um, and they seem to be taking a different type of strategy, a different type of approach with how they're handling them. Um, how How is this? affecting our economy um, and the particular industries that are engaging in these activities. Is this good, bad, what? Um, well, on the surface, I, I would say there's a, a couple different ways to answer that, whether it's good or bad. Um, it's good when we can have a conversation and have price discovery of, of what our wages are, are truly worth. Um, uh, you, you never want – it to have to resort to a strike in order for that, that discovery to take place or, or or anything of that nature. But unfortunately, you know, that's where we are at. And I was honestly surprised, and I guess all of the data didn't trickle through from the UAW strike, but I was surprised that this um, job support was this positive because I thought there would be um, some muting factors from from the, the UAW you know, strike that, that took place earlier in, in the month. Um, 
in the auto, in the, the screen, the guild writers and, and all those different things. I thought we would see some of that in the data, but we, we did not. Um, strikes are, are never fun. They're never good. Um, they all, oftentimes, you know, do not work out in the, in the favor of those striking of the employees. Um, there may be something that is placed on the table, you know, for a temporary period of time, but it, unfortunately it, it's not long-term. Um, in nature, often times we don't see it as long term in nature. Um, so, you know, there there's a lot of ancillary, you know, backlash or side effects that could take place. For example, from the UAW, um, you know, dealerships are are going to struggle in that respect. So, if you're not being able, if you're not able to produce um, the cars to be on the lots, that's going to cause um, cause some, some, some log, logging to take place at those dealerships and, and a backup to take place at those dealerships. So if, if I'm in the, in the mood to, to go out to purchase a car um, that is typically available, but for whatever reason um, there may be a shortage, that means that dealership could create a, uh, a bidding war and, and prices could spike. I remember during the pandemic when there was supply chain issues, um, a lot of car dealers were adding, you know, lot premiums for cars. Well, we actually have this car on the lot, and it's available now, so we're going to add $10,000 or $15,000 to it because you can drive it home today and not have to wait eight to ten weeks to get that vehicle. So the, some of those things are, are potentially the, the ancillary ills that we could see um, as a result uh, of the strikes that are taking place. Okay. I, I, to me, uh, as I was listening to you talk, and I was thinking about um, what you said in terms of who, whom it benefits and, and doesn't. Is there not maybe a component missing when they're planning planning these strikes? And the reason I say that, for example, uh, with the auto workers, they we're talking about, or, you know, we've been making these same wages for, and I may be exaggerating or not, forty years or whatever. But the people in the top echelon uh, are continuing to get. Uh, these raises, you know, exponentially. Yeah. Should there not necessarily be a component in negotiations that says, okay, for every dollar that, you know, someone in the upper echelon, someone in administration or whatever, for every dollar that your raise goes up, you know, maybe there should be X amount of increase with percentage-wise across the board for those that are, you know, the, the grunt workers, so to speak, um, it should, because it seems like they're only looking at their complaint is about the salaries going up for the administrative people and not going up for them. But when they still do the negotiations, it never ties in to the people who are in administrative areas. If they were able to tie that in, do you think it would benefit them more do you think because you know it's almost like okay we're handing you this appeasement right now and we're going to keep on with everything as usual i'm still you know as as the corporate person going to get my um you know hundred thousand dollar increase a year or whatever it is million dollar increase a year what whatever the case may be so should there be a way to say okay we need to figure out a way where all of us benefit or all of us kind of get an equal share of the pie, you know, proportionately. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a hard one, and that's you know solving the answer of what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's, it's always going to be a a, a dichotomy there um, with the questions asked and the requests made, and and what's actually given and delivered. Um, it's it's hard to to tie compensation, um, or I should say, peg conversation compensation to a specific point across an entity when you have such a large variation of scale and responsibilities that take place in that organization. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that we would see that. And if you do, it's, it's harder for those entities to grow and thrive at a larger scale um, because there's always going to be pullback and, and pushback on the, the level of, of fair compensation that, that's going to be out there. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, with these strikes. Uh, but, you know, as far as, like, comparing the executive level to um, the frontline level, there's always that variance and there's always that difference. Uh, whether we deem it to be fair or not, it's, it's always going to be, in my mindset, it's always going to be there um, one based on the level of of input that is valued from each team member. Now, and I say that, you know, going from being um, the bottom of the totem pole, you know, at all the companies I worked for before and rising up a little bit, you know, to actually running my own organization and, and seeing that and understanding the cost, you know, behind everything, you know, the cost behind those employees and adding them. And a lot of times when you try to equate that, you'll lose the talent at the top that is driving the organization. And, and that, you know, can create a, a, a greater loss for everyone in, in tandem in that respect. Okay. Because one of the things you mentioned also earlier too briefly um, were layoffs and you know, from what I understand right now, we are seeing a, a low amount, a, a lower amount of layoffs, but that's subject to increase based on everything else, correct? It is. It is. It is. And, and, and we'll see how interest rates play out. We'll see how the economy plays out. I think the biggest catalyst um, that I see dragging our economy in the near future is, you know, the repayment of student loans. You know, a, a mm-hmm. lot of purchases took place um, when student loans were on pause. A lot of debt has been racked up. And if you look at credit card debt that, that, is, that, are, that is extending on a month-to-month basis, um, we are not essentially in a position um, from the health standpoint of this economy where we can really stomach um, much more burden of a debt added to us um, from an aggregate standpoint. So that could put a lot of stress, a lot of stress on, on the financial system. It could, um, you know, when it comes down to it at the end of the day, is someone going to pay their student loan or are they going to, you know, pay the mortgage or pay the rent? And I think that the decision is pretty clear there. But what that does is when that decision is made, it is going to have an adverse effect on buying potential in the future. So eventually it's going to grind to somewhat of a slower pace as the economic train is moving down the tracks um, when you have a large amount of people that potentially could have the the income and the supportive documents to purchase, um, but they do not have the credit score um, 
based on you know the you know having uh, the negatives against your your credit when it comes to your student loans and having that in the face with dealing with uh, interest rates that could be um, near all time highs if not there. So I think that is a, a the big catalyst to watch for in the future. So you kind of said you don't think you don't believe in strikes as a way to let's say resolve uh, income disparities and and other wage disparities and other types of um, disparities with uh, within the working uh, class. So what do you suggest? What do you foresee as a way of workers getting what they feel that they they need? in order to have, you know, I guess a sustainable income, a life a income that helps them, you know, put food on the table, put the, keep the roof over the head and, and take, you know, medicine, you know, all that type of stuff. How do you, what do you foresee in terms of uh, the best way to bargain with other than the strike? Yeah, so typically, you know, when we are disenfranchised with our pay, it's because things have changed in the economy or things have changed at home where we need more money. And essentially, that's what we have right now with the inflationary economy that we are in. Um, The amount that we made a year ago is not, you know, um, substantive enough for us to survive off of that in today's dollars, in today's terms. Um, that's a separate conversation from um, does my pro- my output equal the input that I'm bringing in? Does my productivity equal the wages that I have? So if we look at, at that as separate dichotomies, two separate things, and just dealt directly not with what's going on at home or why I need more money at home, but just dealt with, you know, am I receiving a fair wage for what I'm doing and how do I keep up separately um, with rising costs? Those are two separate things. So for one, um, I believe this is why we're seeing a lot of um, are seeing 75% of interviewees are, are already have a job. So they, they're already somewhere, placed somewhere, and they're just looking for more pay. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. especially when you're in places where you don't have a union, um, the way that you form a strike is by making sure your resume is up to date and making sure that you're you're marketable and able to find that that other opportunity that you know and i and i didn't say i was against striking i just felt like that it doesn't produce the ultimate result that the the those that are striking are looking for that which is ultimately that price discovery of skills and talent versus income so if we can get okay. to that level of understanding mm-hmm. that skills and talent versus income um, of, mm-hmm. of what your true skill is and your true talent and, and how to marry it and get that to meet your income, um, then that's where we are. When I talk to my parents about this kind of conversation, it's different. For them, um, it was mm-hmm. find a job, you're going to get a pension, stay there for 50 years. Yeah. In today's term, you know, mm-hmm. you, I know people <laughs> that change jobs every two years just so they can get a raise, and that's right. where we are, unfortunately, today. You're managing your own pension. You're setting up your own uh, retirement. We're going to take a quick break. We are here with Paul V. Shelton, Jr. of Warwick Shore Advisors, and when we come back, talking about keeping a roof over your head, we're going to talk with Jabir Najer of Rajon Mortgage. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. Thank you. 
This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs, dedicated to serving our families. Hi, I'm Tim Garrison. Uh, you may know me as Timmy G. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been two decades, but I want you to know I'm back in the yard with you. And I've got a mix of music that can help you relax and chill out. It's smooth. It's relaxing. It's chill out jazz. The soulful mix of smooth jazz, soul, and smooth R&B. So join me every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. to midnight, on K-Ham Radio. Are you chilling? Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. We are here today with Walt Paul V. Shelton of Warwick Shore Advisors. We're talking about the economy. And joining us now is Javier Najir of Rajan Mortgage. Good afternoon, Javier. How are you doing? I am doing good. Thanks for having me, Gretchen. Thank you for joining. So, um, wow. Uh, Coming up on 8% in terms of a mortgage rate, um, says it's the highest in over two decades. And then at the same time, I'm seeing something about the demand for mortgages falling. So what's happening here? Well, the thing is a combination between two things. Um, yes, the rates are quickly approaching 8. Um, I think they kind of calmed down for a little bit. They didn't really drop, but they kind of calmed down in regards to the increase, and then they kind of took off again recently, especially after the last uh, Fed's meeting, and then even this morning when the job reports came out, also had a little bit of a shock to the um, to the rates. We'll see how things kind of calm out, calm down maybe after uh, Friday. Maybe we'll see how things look on Monday, but the assumption is that the Feds are going to increase the rates. So with the higher home prices in combination with the higher interest rates. And yes, the job market is showing signs that it's strong. The problem for a lot of people is that even though individuals, families may be employed, the income doesn't match the amount that they have to pay for a mortgage in many cases. So they're not able to afford the, the, the home at the higher rate and higher prices. If prices were, you know, maybe even where they were back in 2019, uh, maybe it wouldn't be such a, I mean, nobody wants to pay higher rates. Let's get that out of the way. But it wouldn't be such a financial financial stress to families if we're dealing with prices from, you know, four years ago. I wanted to ask you about people who are in – current low-rate mortgages, and although in some cases, probably in a lot of cases, they're not necessarily planning on going anywhere because there's nowhere to go and they don't necessarily want to, um, you know, pay a higher mortgage rate. But for those that are able to go and everything and have a a house that they want to sell um, and have, let's say, the 3% rate, um, 
some people have assumable rate mortgages, which um, from what I'm gathering lately is kind of the, the pitch that you want to put out there is that if you have an assumable rate mortgage and that's at 3% or even 4%, um, you know, that might be the way to go for some trying to get into a home. So I guess what I want to find out is when – when you, how do you know whether or not, first of all, if, if you didn't uh, have those terms on the mortgage when you first got it, how do you know whether or not you have an assumable rate mortgage? And um, how do you, I guess, make that transfer? Or how do you pitch that for a buyer that's still in need of a home right now? All right. So the um you would find out if your current loan is assumable by looking at your closing docs whenever you close in the home there is usually a document somewhere within those closing documents that state whether the loan is assumable or not um i know there are certain loans that are a high chance that they are assumable for example fha loans there's a higher chance that your fha loan is assumable uh, because a lot of fha loans now all fha loans have the ability to be assumed um, the way you would go about that is, of course, you have to contact your lender and let them know that you have a buyer that's interested in purchasing your home, and that particular buyer has to go through the full underwriting process because if somebody's going to assume your mortgage and that mortgage is going to be the responsible, responsibility of that new buyer, the lender needs to make sure that that buyer can actually afford that mortgage. Um, so they are going to review their credit, they are going to review their income, and there are closing costs that are associated with the assumption of a mortgage. So it's not like you just move out the house and all of a sudden the home is in somebody else's name. Um, there are costs. So that buyer may actually have to come out of pocket for a lot of those costs. Now, when it comes to the increase in value, and I'm just throwing out random numbers right now, but let's just say that you have a home that you purchased, you know, five, six years ago, and the home at that point was valued at, let's just say, 250 And now over the course of years, um, it's worth 350 or 400000 Let's just say $400,000. Um, well, that buyer will have to come up with that extra 150000 if that's what you want for the home. Now, that could be done through the process of getting a second mortgage. So it's, a, it's what we call a purchase second where we're able to show that you're they're actually going to assume your current FHA loan and then the second mortgage will come in for the difference for that 150,000. Um so that is the process simply put but one of the biggest things is you have to remember that that buyer does have to be uh be qualified through your current lender to assume that mortgage. Paul, how do you see this um, increase in um, the mortgage rate impacting the rest of the economy? What do you what do you see happening here? Uh, you know, it's all the supply and demand aspect. So, you know, as, as interest rates rise, um, will it will do? You'll get to a point where that equilibrium is going to be within an imbalance uh, for buyers and sellers and, and those that are looking to transact in the market, you know, outside of kind of like what I said earlier about Miami being a total separate beast because of the, the, uh, the import of jobs and things that are going there and the nature of those jobs and the economy, 
um, that is shifting in that area. But everywhere else around, you know, the country, um, as interest rates are rising and as interest rates are higher, it, um, it shortens the, the distance in which our, our buying capacity can travel. So I, I think, you know, we, we saw with the first wave of, of interest rates rising um, during the early part of, of the pandemic, or during the pandemic, I should say, a lot of people that were on the cusp of being able to afford home ownership um, were priced out immediately in that respect. And then we're, we're seeing as, as interest rates are, are rising higher and higher, we're, we're seeing that although, you know, on a grand scale, it's not showing new home data that is, that is selling. But in my mind, if I were looking down the road, let's say two to, two to three years, um, as I'm seeing new developments that are coming up, I'm curious um, of how many of those homes that are selling in those developments now, what their values would be or will be three years from now if, if interest rates are higher for longer. So, Jabir, for someone that is, is let's say, maybe on pause now because they're saying, oh, my God, 8%, that's not necessarily what I had planned on, on paying when I was thinking a year ago about purchasing a home. Um, how do you – what do you suggest for them, that Jabir? Should they wait, you know, do they proceed with caution? Are there, I guess, products out there to assist um, purchasers now? Are there still products out there for them to, to grab onto that may help them with their purchase? If they find something, that's the other thing too, finding something and finding something affordable. Right. So there are products out there, and depending on what income bracket you fall within, there are down payment assistance programs that will give you anywhere from five to $50,000 uh, towards your down payment. So that should hopefully relieve, you know, especially if you're on the higher end of 50000 hopefully offer some type of uh, assistance to the monthly payment. Uh, there are some in-house programs, but there, the in-house programs that we offer will just provide you with the minimum down payment required. Uh, so if, let's just say you're looking at an FHA loan. Um, we will give you a grant for 3.5%. So that will necessarily make a big difference in your monthly payment, but at least it will keep a little bit more money in reserves in your bank account. And then there are certain programs such as a 1% down program for conventional. But keep in mind, again, that's not given a huge relief when it comes to your monthly payments, just more so relief to the amount of money you have to come out of pocket. Um, as far as should you wait or not, that's hard for me to just give any, just give a blanket statement and say to wait or not. Because everybody's situation is a little different. Um, there are people who really need a place to live right now. They either move from another city or their household situation has changed. They have the funds for a down payment. and Or especially if they just sold a home and they need a place to live. It may be the best, and of course, if they can afford it, it may be the best option for them to purchase at this point. But there are those families that are, are stretched a little bit. If they are in a situation rental-wise that they feel as if they can afford the rent and they don't believe the rent in that particular area is going to increase any further, maybe it may be worth it to wait a little bit. But it's really hard to give a blanket statement because everybody's situation is a little different. For one person, it may be best to move forward today, and for another person, 
it may be best for them to, you know, wait till next summer to, or maybe fourth quarter of next year when the expect possibly the feds may start uh, cutting rates. But that all depends on the data that comes in, so nobody really knows. Yeah, that's true. What What is the um, average closing time going for right now from contract to closing? Um, well, we're still going to get all loans done in 30 days or less. And in some cases in clean files, I mean, we've had two and a half to three weeks. But, you know, I always hate to, you know, I don't want anybody to hang their head on two and a half weeks. That's not normal. There's Everything has to be yeah. in a line to close in two and a half weeks. But I would, if you have everything together, um, three to four weeks is still something we're able to do. Okay. So I guess what I want to say, it's um... – October now uh, speeding ahead. Um, someone must say is, is if they're fortunate enough to find something uh, to get into uh, by Christmas. What kind of things should be in place right now, or what kind of things well, should be first, uh, be prepared right now? Well, the first thing is to get pre-approved right away, um, like yesterday, but that's really going <laughs> to put together a. Um, a roadmap to what you need to do in order to get moving on purchasing, whether it's the down payment, fixing certain things on your credit, because if you're looking to get into a home quickly, there's not a lot of time. So a lot of times people may start with looking at homes and try to get pre-approved for that. But the best thing to do is talk to a broker, get pre-approved, and at the same time start talking, um, gaining a relationship with a realtor. So once the broker pre-approves you, which hopefully should be within 24 hours, you can start looking. Um, one of the things that you really want to make sure is that you have everything to get as far as pay stubs, W-2s, and tax returns. If you're a W-2 employee, many times we may not need your tax returns, but I still tell people to have that together anyway. And also have the funds available in your account for the down payment and closing costs. Uh, if there's any money cash in hand that you have or, you know, under the mattress money, as they say, best thing to do is put it in the account right away if you're at least two months out from closing. Because as long as mm-hmm. we only take the last two months of bank statements in most cases, so if we don't see any large deposits, we don't ask any questions where the money came from before then. So okay. if the money and is not in an account, okay, uh-huh. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Well, I, I one of the things say, I do want to talk about real, real quick is gift funds. If you have someone that is contributing to your down payment or to your closing costs, and like you were saying, you need to see where the money comes from, how how soon should you get that so so it can be, I guess you could say, settled? How, how should, soon should right, people so, get those gift funds? Right. Yeah, that's actually next thing I was going to mention there for perfect timing. Uh, if you don't have the funds available in your account, the gift funds, they can actually literally go in your account or in many cases go directly to the title company the day or the day uh, before closing. But it's very important before that that we know that you are receiving gift funds because depending on your credit profile, you may not be able to have 1% of the money for down payment and closing calls come from gifts. So it's very important mm-hmm. that, you're very, that you're upfront with us ahead of time, especially if you're on the lower uh, end of the credit um, score range. Because you're on the lower end of the credit score range, the system may only allow you to receive 75 or even 50% of the money of gift funds because they want to see you have, you're a stronger borrower when it comes to your savings if you have a lower score. Or if you have a higher score, sometimes you don't even have any money of your own. Um, but we're also going to need to show where, where that money came from. So the donor will have to provide their statement 
or a letter from the bank confirming that they have the funds available to um, gift you those funds. And last but not least, when, um, when it comes to gifts, the money has to be transferred to your, to your account either by check or by wire. If that person happens to pull cash out on Monday and then gave you the cash on Friday, it's not going to work. They need to show the funds going directly from one account to the other. Okay. And we'll address that again because uh, I want I do want to kind of break that down a little bit more. Uh, so hopefully, maybe next month we'll address that again as we get into the giving spirit um, as the holidays continue. So thanks, Javier. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. This Finance Friday here on G's Power Hour. By the way, if you have questions or comments, the number is 516-387-1944. G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple, dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs, dedicated to serving our families. Hi, I'm Tim Garris, and I think I found a way to help you understand what is Chill Out Jazz. It is what it is. Is it R&B? Tune in every Wednesday night at 10 on KM Radio. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I've never had it so good entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we want to again thank Debir Nadir Rajan Mortgage for um, giving us an update on the um, mortgage rates and um, the housing outlook. And I wanted to talk to you again, uh, Paul, in regards to uh, something I saw a headline about. It says, new data reveals a crash not seen since the Great Depression could hit in 2024. This is on um, foxbusiness.com. And so I wanted to ask you, what are the factors that could come together that could to go into uh, this Great Depression? Uh, I, I think, you know, what, kind of what we mentioned before, if inflation stays high and stays high for too long, um, it's going to really slow down spending, um, you know, at the personal level. But you got to also think about, you know, as, as – Corporations are consumers as well. So when you start to think of um, all of your different retailers, all your different, you know, grocery store chains, um, the banking system in general, um, right now the banking system is under a lot of stress or high interest rates. They're having to really fight, borrow, and, you know, bargain, you know, by increasing CD rates in order to get deposits in. So that increases the cost of capital for those banks. Um, if we do get to that point in 2024 where interest rates start to reduce, most of those CDs are still going to be, you know, required or are still left there at 5% or higher, maybe when interest rates are nominally at that level or possibly a little lower. That puts adverse, you know, interest expense risk. Uh, on the banking system. Um, if that does take place or happens to, to play out in that respect, 
it couldn't cause um, somewhat of another little mini banking crisis like we saw earlier this year with the regional banks uh, where credit will dry up and they're not able to lend based on tier one capital ratios. Um, so that's, that's one caveat that could lead to that. Uh, again, the student loan scenario, um, we really don't know how significant um, that will be, and we don't anticipate that that will cause any angst or heartburn um, next month. But, you know, after a few months goes by and, and some credit reports are deemed and damaged, um, what happens for those individuals that are looking to go out and make purchases in 2024 or, you know, early 2025 if things are, are still unraveling at that time. Um, so those are, to me, the catalysts that could um, spell trouble for us in the future. Okay, Paul. So you got someone that says, my gas has gone up. My mortgage has gone up. Uh, my interest rate, is, you know, my my um, cost to send my kids to school has gone up. You know, the food to put on the table has gone up. The electric bill has gone up, water bill, all that type of stuff. But And you still have to tell them that they need to save money. That is, that's a hard, hard dose of medicine to, to dish out. How do we as the consumer uh, best receive that, and how do we best uh, carve out that little bit to save up for the rainy day or, in this case, the possible recession that's coming or depression, whatever, that's coming in 2024? Yeah, that's hard. It's hard, and that's what drives most people to have a second job and sometimes a third job and, and then, you know, a side hustle on top of that in mm. order just to stay, stay afloat, um, uh, yeah. which we are seeing a, a lot of, especially as costs are rising for housing. Um, we're we're going to see more uh, familial units that have um, two families in them or, you know, multiple mm-hmm. families in a housing unit. Um, we We've been seeing that with businesses. I know, um, a handful of businesses that are either subletting some of their space um, to other in- individuals in their same industry or different industries, or they may be, you know, subleasing, taking out some space from, you know, a larger organization just to have an office or a room in there just to consolidate costs. So those, those things are there. It's hard. It, it is. There's no no answer to to solve that. The only way to, to really try to mitigate that risk is through planning. And, um, you know, planning is the process of, of looking ahead, looking down the road. And that's what I try to do with my clients is, is in, you know, two years ahead, what could potentially happen two years from now, five years from now, 10, 15 mm-hmm. years from now, and how are we prepared um, when we do our own personal stress test like the bank does uh, or like the Federal Reserve does for the banks, you know. What, what, okay. what does our situation look like in that scenario? Okay, and so my paycheck comes. What percentage do I carve out and where do I put it? Because I think that's one of the questions is like, do I put it in a bank? Do I put it in the start market, stock market? Where do I put this money, you know, because I don't necessarily want to let's say risk it all and lose it or risk too much and lose it. So what percentage of my check do I carve out? And then do I split up that percentage? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I would say, um, and it's different for everyone, but you want to make sure that you have at least a, a workable savings left for if there's a catastrophic event or anything that happens that prevents you from, you know, deriving that paycheck. Um, do I have enough in savings to where I can, you know, go a month, two months, three months, and just work your way up to that slowly, four months with, without um, any issues, major issues. And then on top of that, ensuring that you have um, insurance to cover you for any catastrophic events. I know a lot of times we look at, okay, should I put $10 in a jar or put $10 here or there, when in actuality sometimes it may be if you have an employer plan, add an extra $6 for a short-term disability. That could be, mm. you know, some, some savings or, or a safety net that you can use to prevent some of those catastrophic losses um, that could come about from a, a medical bill or a car bill or anything of, of that nature. Um, so I, I look at that. Um, you want to make sure you have your insurance cover, make sure you have some savings for that rainy day. And then outside of that, then that's when I, I say, you know, let's definitely look at investing those funds to be prudent over it so that it can grow and, and, and kind of continue that, that nesting egg for you. Um, yeah. And you did say car bill, cause that's going to be hard. if this the strike keeps up because you might have a hard time getting another car or even getting a part in a timely fashion. So, you know, you, you exactly. kind of got to do the maintenance, the, the regular maintenance right now on the car to make sure it doesn't go down. And then if it happens to go down, you're going to have to kind of have something set aside um, and, and just, you know, pray and then see if there's, even a used car that you can get in good shape at some point because, you know, the brand-new car may not be there for you and not when you want it especially. So. Correct. So so if yep. you had one, just one term, let's say, for the next month, something that, that our consumers need to focus on for the next month, what would that be? Patience. That one term would be patience. Um, because you know we're we're enter yeah patients we're we're entering a, a level of, of volatility while we're we're in a level of volatility in the market um, the stock market is typically uh, precedes what's going to happen in the economic market so if if we're going to foreshadow anything to happen for us in the next several months or over this next quarter um, it would not be as rosy as the beginning I would say of this year would be our the rise that we've seen up so far. Um, so I would say have patience. P for patience. That's the that's the word of the day. P for patience. Paul Z. <laughs> Shelton of Warwick Shore Advisors, thank you so much. You and your family have a blessed weekend. And we also want to thank Divinity of Ryazar Mortgage. And thank you all for listening. This has been G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, enjoy your weekend. But please remember, all real power comes from God. Take care.